Welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. It's a bit of a different episode because it is our final episode of Series 1. That went quick. It did go quick. Well, it probably went quick for the listeners. Though. It, it, <laughs> it, took, it took us a bit longer. Yeah, if you've been <laughs> listening to all the episodes, I think it's been a fantastic series. And this final episode is really going to round it off nicely. Now, this is actually going to be part one of a two-part series. Episode one of Series 2 is going to be the second part of this. So who have we got on, John? We've got Jess Butcher. On. Now, the Jess is a, a massive fan of Jess. She, I met her actually uh, when she was uh, one of the co-founders of Blipper. Uh, Blipper have got uh, an amazing story. Aren't um, they the company that got to a unicorn, yeah. offered to buy out and then failed? Yeah. I, I know. I, I mean, if, if you do your research on them, you discover they were valued at over a billion dollars at one stage. Now, oh, man, I would be going, why didn't I cash out? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, what? But they were pioneers in augmented reality. Now, you see augmented reality in lots of apps now, like Snapchat and stuff like that. And um, But they were genuinely the first to market. And what they did was amazing. And um, in fact, I was working uh, on a small juice brand with no budget whatsoever. And um, I had to relaunch it in about 12, 12 16 weeks or so. And uh, I'd, I'd discovered technology about six months earlier. I'd, I'd seen it in a presentation. I thought, this is really cool. And the brand I was working on was called Juice Burst. And we had, you know, the idea was that we'd have juice exploding on the bottle. And what I was able to do with Blipper is actually, if you put your phone over the bottle, you could actually explode the juice on the pack and see it kind of, you know, uh, explode in front of you. It was so super cool. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's where I met Jess in the very, very early stages of Blipper. So wh- wh- why was Blipper so revolutionary at the time why did it get such high valuation well the amazing thing so what blipper basically does is connect the digital world with the physical world so if you imagine what you could do with blipper is you could see a a print ad and you could put your phone over that ad and then you could see that print ad come to life you know literally come to life and then allow you to interact with the ad so you could you could you know find out more about the brand you could you know enter competitions you could see you know you could see behind the scenes that sort of thing so it was a really really clever use of technology and actually where where blipper then so blipper did their own pivot actually and then they what they then created off the back of that was a thing called visual search so whereas uh, rather than typing into google um you know google you know find me a restaurant in the area what um, they could do is a single visual search, which is you see something you're interested in, you just put your phone in front of it and it will recognize that and it will just access like links, um, you know, buy now, more information. So it, it kind of speeds that process of allowing you to interact with the kind of physical world. It's really, it was really clever stuff. Didn't you do something with the business card as well? Yeah, this is funny, right? So, I, you know, you have those little ideas and think, oh, this could be fun. So. Um, you know, like Princess Leia in Star Wars kind of pops yeah, out and yeah. a little avatar sort of thing, really old school 70s kind of, you know, use of it. Um, I had this little idea. It said, when I go to meetings, I want a little avatar of me popping out of my business card, right? And um, so I went to Blipper and said, can you make it for me? So I, 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 I filmed myself giving a little speech and uh, they took the video and managed to get it to pop out the business card. Now, uh, now I, I had to check to see what the stats are now, but in the first six months, my business card had been blipped 30,000 times. And I only printed 50 business cards. You know, it's so literally everyone I handed it to was showing other people and they were doing it online, this sort of thing. But the funny thing, when I caught, you know, you'll find this from the podcast later, that uh, Jess then told me that they hadn't, they hadn't even made their own business cards blippable. So they were using my business card to show what's possible with Blipper. So uh, that made me quite happy. This was really, really really entertaining uh, i think you're really going to love it let's get into it 
So uh, Jess, lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. Let, listen, let's start at the beginning. So uh, tell me about your journey. How did you get here and why tech? Yeah, I often ask myself that actually, because I have no idea how I got here. I very um, glamorously have referred to my whole career strategy to date as throwing shit to the wall um, because none of it actually had a plan. Um, and that's uh, demonstrated by my CV in my 20s. So I did a history degree, doesn't say woman in tech, does it? Uh, and then I had a progression of graduate roles and jobs throughout my 20s, um, which I tend to move on from every two years. And they were across a wide range of industries from recruitment to research. I sold DVDs for a while. I worked in international trade for a while. Uh, and there were a couple more that I've actually dropped from my LinkedIn profile <laughs> because it looked so ugly. And I would invariably move because I would fall out with a manager or I'd fall out of love with the concept um, because typically I would go to them because I, I loved what they were trying to do. And my role was always around communications and business development. So it was trying to bring on board stakeholders to communicate ideas and ways in which this product or service um, was going to change the world in some way. And I would get sold that vision by typically the founders or the, the managers at that company. I would believe it and I would want to represent it. Uh, and then I'd either fall out of love with them or the vision and, um, and it was scrappy and it was messy and I kind of hit my late 20s thinking, well, what, what do I like doing? And if I can't be managed, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps I need to be my own boss and there I should go. consider entrepreneurialism. But of course, it, that's easier said than done. And uh, I guess circumstances aligned um, uh, in 2010 when I met a man. So this is the ah, least feminist like story it. you're likely to hear. So it was, um, it was a boyfriend at the time who I just met, wasn't sure whether it was going anywhere. And he said, well, we knew when we first met that he was going to be going to Africa for nine months, um, about three months later. Uh, I was on the verge of getting sacked from my latest company for another fallout with another boss. And he just said on a whim, well, why don't you come with me? And I thought, hmm, I'm 29. Do I want to be hanging around for this guy for nine months who may or may not be worthwhile? I don't enjoy my job. Sod it. Why not? So we went to Africa, and this isn't just a love story, it's the beginning of the entrepreneurial journey, because um, whilst I was out there, I was just going to volunteer in some of the local um, NGOs or work at a school, uh, and instead I actually built a business. So I, I leveraged some of the experience that I'd got from a travel job that I'd had a couple of years previously, and I built out an, a responsible tourism company in deepest, darkest Western Kenya. And what that became was a sort of MBA in kind. It, I guess, demystified the process of starting a business. Um, it was thrilling. It was exciting. Uh, I built up a great business. I built a team. And of course, something much more valuable to have left behind than a coat of paint. Um, and I just came back hungry to continue that business, to roll it out into a sort of aggregator of responsible tourism. As, as an entrepreneur, frankly, oh, with a ring on my finger as well. Oh, so that one, that one worked out well. Well done. Um, and so that was what I was doing. I came back at, in early 2011 and I was playing around with this idea. And then a, an ex-colleague of mine um, approached me and for a coffee, what are you up to, you know, the normal catch up. And he showed me the, the very first sort of prototype of, of Blipper. Um, and... 
I saw this and I just thought, oh my God, this, you know, it was one of those demos where you just think, this is the future. Yeah. I've never seen this before. Uh, I had, by the way, no way of qualifying how good the technology actually was. And he, um, he'd partnered with two very technical guys and he said, would you be interested in coming on board and doing what you do, communication, sales and marketing? Um, and I've often referred to it, it's not very often that you get an opportunity to get a, take a seat on a rocket. Um, and suddenly my uh, responsible tourism uh, prospects sort of, <laughs> sort of went poof. Got slightly chunks, uh, yeah, yeah, and I thought, well, I've, I've got time right now. I've mm. got the support of uh, my now fiancé, who is prepared, as excited for me at that prospect. So talking very frankly, you know, he could financially support that me testing that as an idea. Uh, and so Blipper was born. Um, I joined the boys and I found myself being a tech entrepreneur. Now, tech actually was my natural inclination because the other thing that I learned about that experience of my 20s and the reason why I'd gone to all these different companies was because I love disruption. And of course, disruption equals tech these days. Um, so there was a thread to it with hindsight. Um, but it was, yeah, that, so that was early 2011. And then the roller coaster began. Because I remember I, I came across you. So it, in fact, it was 2011. I remember I was um, back at Britvic uh, working on Gatorade and uh, my agency at the time, Iris, um, were doing uh, uh, basically the 10 most disruptive technologies um, at the time. And that's how I found out about Blipper. And it's amazing. I remember um, I genuinely being blown away by it because um, they came and presented me um, the, the advert that we're going to run for the following year because it's London Olympics. And um, we had Usain Bolt. We had Victoria Pendles. We had some amazing sports people on our books. And um, they, 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 came, they, they came and showed me this ad. It was a kind of black and white ad with Victoria going across the finish line, and then they said, put your phone over it. And um, what it basically did is it then, it then turned the, uh, the static page into a video and showed, showed her going back around the track in her race, and then you see her before the race taking a swig of Gatorade before she started. Uh, it genuinely blew my mind. It was, just, it was incredible tech. And then, uh, unfortunately, and I don't know if this is, this is a kind of familiar story, but I couldn't convince the person in charge of the media spend to dedicate the money to it, because um, although I thought it was astonishing, um, they were looking at it kind of alongside traditional media at the time, going, "Well, the, you know, the cost per cost per view is not as you know not as good." But that was certainly where I came across Blipper. It's amazing. Yeah, it was very. It, that was our typical story. Um, you know, there were lots. There was a huge amount of interest because, like you, and and still for about three or four years, we were pretty much the only people demonstrating this technology, and people would have a very visual, delighted reaction to seeing any demo, but then they just d didn't know what to do with it. Yes. Um, yeah. So we were we were pulled out for all these sort of innovation workshops and presentations and we were put in so many pictures and it took up 99% of our energy creating proofs of concept for pictures that would never get signed off and um, because the big brands were never brave it was always the pretender brands that would be the ones that would innovate and were prepared to look outside of the digital silos because this was the other challenge we had with Blipper nobody knew where to put us which budget to put us into because we were a digital tech um, and it was it was mobile optimated, uh, mobile optimized. Um, uh, what's the word? No, mobile triggered. But it was activating physical collateral. Yeah. So it was a press ad or an outdoor ad or product packaging. And of course, each of those different 
they're different budgets. They're often different teams. They're different stakeholders. And they just wanted, if, it, if, they, if they were thinking with a digital hat, they were like, oh, well, what's the cost per acquisition? What's yeah, the, exactly. the, the CPM? If they were looking at it from a packaging perspective, they're like, well, how does it compare to point of sale cardboard purchase? Um, so it became too difficult. They just didn't know what to do with it. So we ended up having to go up and up the tree and, and have longer and longer lead times. We got a few campaigns from the sort of the end of a buying cycle. But by then, they hadn't built content for us, so everybody was just slapping a TV ad on a press ad. And frankly, it damaged the whole perception of augmented reality because it was an afterthought and an add-on. And the consumer, once they'd seen one press ad, a TV ad played on a press ad, it was like, It was Meh. like, we've done that, we'll move yeah, on to it. Yeah, it was a gimmick. And that was why we, we suffered through this yeah. gimmick term for well, slightly a slightly weirdly, of actually, that it kind of... It, strangely, it ends up playing to my advantage because I um, I left uh, Britvic in 2012 and then did a management buy into a juice business. And um, I remember the owners gave me 16 weeks to completely relaunch uh, Juice Burst was, was the brand. And uh, my basic idea I came up with the brand is, well, well, Juice Burst was about fruit exploding on the packaging. And I remembered back the presentation from Iris and Gatorade and showed me, and I thought, damn it, that's a good use of this technology. So... I remember quite a hilarious, in fact, it was three days it took me. Um, I went and uh, got, got a studio. I was working with um, Williams Murray Ham, who were the designers. And um, we spent three days blowing up fruit and filming it on a camera. And I remember talking to you guys, I go, right, so the job is I need to wrap this video around the bottle. So when everyone blips the bottle, the fruit's going to explode out of the packaging kind of thing. Uh, but but you're so right. I mean, it, because I was the marketing director and the well, the only person in my, the only person commercially almost in the in the company, I could then I, I valued it as packaging. I valued it as advertising. I valued it from a digital point of view, and it was gonna it was gonna absolutely trounce whatever I would do on Facebook. You know, with the kind of small budgets I was working on. So. Yeah, no, you I, were I, a visionary. I know. Exactly. Do you know how many years I carried a juice box uh, yeah. uh, round <laughs> in my bag for demos? And I demoed that on stages and platforms all over the oh. world. It went to South, South by Southwest. I'm it so went happy. To Cannes, <laughs> it went to Le Web. Your great work. So I did a lot of publicity for you. Thank you. Thank you. The, the, probably the, the, the one that I got, m- I was most pleased with, actually, weirdly, was the business card as well. Yeah, I, that I, was I, cool. I got everyone in the company. I say everyone in the company. It was about 12 people this, you know, in terms of like... The, the office, but um, I, I got them all to kind of uh, do a little pitch for the business. Said, right, you know, I'm going to film you. You've got 30 seconds. Pitch juice burst, right? And I've never seen like 12 people be more afraid in their life. But then I turned them in. You know, then I turned them into the avatar popping out the, uh, the business card. But it was like a traditional little juice business in the Midlands had turned into a kind of a world famous kind of cutting edge technology brand. But Can I admit on that? Yeah. Do you know you blipped your business cards before anyone at Blipper did? Did I? You were the one that gave us the idea that we no. should make our own business cards what? interactive. <laughs> we just didn't have time. That's why we never got around to oh, it. Oh, that's so funny. And yours was so good that we we're like, yeah. well, come on, this is ridiculous. Like, clients yeah. done it before we have. Oh, brilliant. Oh, very happy to hear that. And in fact, um, one, uh, the brand won a D- DBA, the Design Effectiveness Award, in, oh, I can't remember when it was now, it must be about 2015. And it was because of the use of Blipper. It was the use of technology and packaging to bring the whole thing to life. So, yeah, amazing. Um, so, I mean, Blipper was an incredible uh, journey, wasn't it? I mean, I remember at one time, you know, described as a unicorn, top 20 most disruptive technologies in the world, valued at a billion pounds. So what, what kind of happened, uh, what happened after... A, you know you kind of went through rapid funding rounds and that sort of thing so what happened in that time between I guess me 
attempting to, <laughs> to, to to use it and then when you left Ah, oh, well, there's a there's the business journey and then there was a sort of personal journey that was going on at that stage as well. So I was the CMO from 2011 to 2015, four years. Um, and that was, I, I would say, probably the most um, uh, exciting period of my professional life ever. I learned more in those four years than I, I learned in any, any job previously. And I felt like I was a superhero in a weird way because I, I felt like I was doing five people's jobs. I was more productive than I've ever been in my life. I was just getting balls and throwing them and winging them and we were hiring like you wouldn't believe. We were pitching everywhere. I was flying all over the world. You know, within six months, we went from nobodies to being the world-leading experts in this very embryonic tech as it was taking off. And, you know, we were in demand. We were getting exposure to incredible people um, I set up our commercial teams in the UK. I also set up our New York office. So I was spending quite a lot of time there as well, uh, which I absolutely loved. And we were winning great proofs of concept, I think would be fair to say, rather than um, you know, sustainable long-term um, clients. Um, and uh, you know, at, when, by the time I stepped out of the business, I'll come on to why I, I did that. You know, we were riding very, very high. Lots of investor interest. Finally, they were, the, that community was waking up to AR um, and a lot of international expansion. Um, and then I had, well, I had three children in four years. Okay. Yeah. I after the first, I pretended that I could do this, and I was a superhuman wow. um, super mom. Um, in between two and three, I realized that I couldn't live life on that pace anymore. And I didn't, I didn't have the same desire to because it, I was missing out on far too much. So it was at that point that I moved into more of an advisory role for the business, still very actively involved on the board and a weird non-exec in that I was in the business a good two or three days a week, uh, but without line management. But there was another reason for that as well. The business had scaled to an extent at which I wasn't really a CMO. I'd given myself that job title because you can when there's four co-founders that stick a C on it on something and it was the most natural one for me on being on that front end of the business. But it got to a stage where there were people much, much better at me at that, at managing sales teams, at managing marketing, at digital and at communications. I'd probably reached the level at which a good generalist should. So my personal circumstances also Co coincided with a time at which we needed to get you know really good specialists who knew what they were doing and in particular team managers which was something that I don't think we did well at Blipper we got lots of brilliant individuals in and that's evidenced by how many of them have now gone on to run their own companies it was almost like an entrepreneurial mm. uh, training school um, but not many really good managers and with hindsight that's really that that's, that 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 was a struggle because well, it I made us more political than we needed yeah. to be. There were a lot of egos around, yeah. um, you know, and not as much th of the communication that we needed in order to scale that fast. Um, but there's no question scaling that fast. I mean, we went from four to 350 in the space of um, people, that is, yeah. in the space of three, four years. So well, I remember like every, every meeting, it'd be like, ah, new offices and bigger team. I know. And like, I oh, know. I recognize you now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, there are challenges, aren't they, in scaling a business it in itself is a big challenge. Massively. I mean, you've got the obvious challenges of communication, logistics, office, HR, 
you know, we'd had a quite high churn because you wouldn't necessarily make those hiring decisions well when you were making them that that quickly. Fundraising. And then the, the personal challenges, actually, of raising your game to that number of people. You know, you can't be everybody's friend anymore. You need to have a layer of, uh, of management. And I, in particular, struggled with that because I'm not a strong manager. I'm very heart on sleeve. And if things are good everybody's energized around me and I can really bring the mood up. My God, if I'm in a bad mood, I used to see people hide behind their screens and sort of dip because they could see. Because I I couldn't say, how do you think that went? I'd go, the hell were you thinking? Why would you do that? Which isn't good management. They knew where they stood, though. Yeah, they did know where they stood, but uh, yeah, it wasn't a strength of mine. So yeah, I mean, and concurrently with that personal journey that I went on, particularly with my family, you know, a lot was changing in the space. There were more entrants to the market. Um, there were the big guys starting to sniff around to start to invest in their own tech. And there was always the challenge of BIP of what was the right business model for AR. And we probably held on to wanting to own the consumer journey and the verb and the app and the eye, the lens to unlock this stuff longer than we should have done because it was going to be impossible to bring on all the different forms of content. I think with hindsight, obviously, that's easy to say. Uh, It was a very, very bullish and ambitious vision that we had. Um, and possibly it could have worked with slightly different strategic decisions. But as the big guys, particularly in the States um, um, and Athanasia, started to come in, you know, we probably should have diversified that model sooner, I think, to have enabled the right partnerships to have taken off. Um, so that makes sense. That's one thing I remember kind of almost worrying for you is that either you have to scale so quickly that you just become the dominant AR platform or you have to partner with, you know, handset manufacturers or other people that you can, you know, use their sort of network to get you out there quicker. I wanted to ask you um, a more broad question actually about tech. So, um, it, I mean, it's quite interesting that we're in, we're in a very, if you look at the big picture, we're in a very sort of uh, early stage of, you know, so I've got two daughters and they're growing up in a sort of very tech-enabled kind of environment that is so unfamiliar to me. Um, and uh, if I look at my own experience, you know, I've kind of I've kind of come off Facebook because I, I found myself getting depressed at all the kind of negativity on there. Um, I, I made the mistake the other day. Oh, I wish I'd never done this. I made a comment on Brexit on this feed, on this comedian's oh, feed, and it's like it. It, it was. I know it's like a pie. It's, I, it's some was guy, it was for a, or against? Well, do you know what? I, well, <laughs> <laughs> here we go. This is where it ends. But now, all I said was, um, I said. I say something like, I believe in democracy more than I believe in the outcome of the vote. As in, I wanted to, I think we should respect what the nation decided as being the most important thing. And I, I think the, the mistake I made is that I will do a protest vote for leave if we have a second referendum, even though I would vote remain, simply out of solidarity for the leave vote not being honoured in the first round, which I thought was kind of a a reasonable considered argument and then I was accused of being a Brexit troll and all this kind of stuff and I, oh my god <laughs> it was tragic but um, I do wonder I think that we don't really have a handle on the psychological impact that technology and social media is having on us as human beings and if I take my daughter as well I mean you know she's only 12 but maybe it's been on social media a couple of years and I see some of the battles she has with you know you know being taken off groups or excluded from this or you know this sort of thing what's what are your thoughts on kind of where it's all going for technology and 
Yeah. How do we harness um, it for good? Uh, well, <laughs> this is a this is a big personal journey I've been on as well, and that was uh, actually another factor in me moving out of uh, of the front seat of Blipper. As I started to observe the same things you did, you know, walking around uh, an art gallery in Paris and seeing 90% of the gallery with their backs to the art, taking selfies um, against the, the paintings rather than looking at it, watching gigs and live music everyone through fi- phones. Everyone films the gig, don't they? And you're yeah, like, bus stops of well kids not it. talking to each yeah. other. You know, I think everybody actually has started to have these observations. But of course, professionally, it was my job to put the phone between us and the real world. And I really wrestled with that. Mm. I could tell myself that, you know, there were lots of educational opportunities of bringing solar systems to life and time machines. And, you know, and I still believe that AR has the power to really immerse people in educational content uh, and to unlock good utility and tell beautiful stories. But I didn't, I I lost uh, my passion for building a marketing technology that was going to, um, stop them engaging with the real world. You know, it's the the key is in the word. It's got to augment, yes. not replace. Um, and you know that 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 became a concern for me. And I really tuned into um, a lot of these um, digital detox and humane technology trends. Uh, I read a lot. I've I've um, I, I've I've played with a lot of different tools that are seeking to moderate our usage. Um, my concerns are well, a multitude from what you've discussed, um, you know, the kids and their time and how it's affecting their mental health, in particular watching the rose-tinted um, social media feeds and the narcissism that evolves over having to capture everything. It's almost like if you don't capture it digitally, it's not happening. You know, we're kind of outsourcing our memories to our, uh, our phone devices. Um, and to uh, polarization, absolutely, of debate, the fact that everything has been condensed into such a short-form good and bad, right and wrong narrative, I believe that that is a big catalyst for the polarization that we're seeing within Western societies. And, and, and more fundamentally, the time that is lost, the time and energy that is lost on infinite scroll is depressing because it's not giving us value and it's distracting us from deep thought, from flow and from creativity. Um, And the thing that offends me more than anything in life is wasted time and loss of perspective. And I feel that technology is fueling both of those things to a massive, massive extent. Um, And I I want to believe there were unintended byproducts of a lot of the big tech companies. You know, I think the, the, the missions were probably right to make the world more connected or whatever Facebook's was to give us the right information but you cannot get away from the business models and the fact that they need to addict you they're like slot machines they deliver dopamine they need that infinite scroll because ultimately they're monetizing your time and there's something very disconcerting and alarming about um, a society where our time is being monetized in that way and our attention is is being diverted for that purpose so yes very frustrated. I'm, tr- I'm seeking to do as much as I can to wade into these discussions, uh, talking at events, you know, going along to focus groups, um, lobbying and doing things with the Center for Humane Tech, uh, which is a big U.S. initiative that's increasingly over here. Um, and, I, and, and getting people just to recognize that digital, like, like, like food, 
is health is about health it's what you put into your body it's what you choose to engage with i love my phone i think the phone is an incredible device that's made all of our lives so much easier but there's a big distinction between the utility of what the phone can do and our access to knowledge which is wonderful and unprecedented um, and is game-changing for everybody um, and the addiction of infinite scroll dopamine driving um, applications of the phone and I think we need to look at some things as healthy and some things as junk. And I think when we start to identify what is junk and what is nutritious yeah. by evaluating our own behaviors and what it's stopping us from doing, um, then I think we're on the cusp of that change and it's happening very dramatically because everybody's waking up to it now. We're starting to leave our phones downstairs. Kids, everyone, everyone of our generation will always go, oh, the kids are addicted. There. It's, it, they are actually taking the initiative on this. They're the ones that are pushing back and putting pressure on their parents increasingly yeah. now as well to say too much, you know, put your phone down. Actually, yeah, um, you're right, actually. My, so my eldest, Amelie, who's 12, um, yeah, she, she doesn't take her phone upstairs. And she kind of like will have, she'll go, right, I'm now answering my, um, my friends and I'm going to turn it off, which is very healthy. But I, I do, because obviously mental health is such an issue. And that feels like, you know, we're paying the price, aren't we? But we're not looking, we're addressing it, you know, through counselling and, and that sort of thing. But we're not addressing the root cause, um, as well as the productivity point you mentioned as well. Absolutely. There's a brilliant book uh, for anyone who's interested on this called The Coddling of the American Mind. You can ignore the American bit because it's very much Western, yeah. Western culture. And um, there are six things that um, th they identify as contributing to this mental health crisis in the young. Um, and um, technology is, is, is one of the biggest and the way in which our technology trends have changed. But there are many others, mm. uh, you know, the culture in terms of protectionism, of how we bring up children yeah. and protect them from everything that's going on around them has all made them scared and, you know, preparing the child for the road as opposed to the road for the child, which is where we've moved to. Uh. Um, so, yeah, I'm very tuned in. and I, I, I sometimes need to stop the reading and actually get on with the day job. Well, well good luck to you. I think it's, yeah. a, it's a very, very yeah. worthy course. So, listen, you, uh, you had incredible experience at Blipper. I mean, you know, one of the most amazing stories. And then three kids in four years. So not like, you know, you, you don't like being uh, quiet, do you? <laughs> so what have you done? That, what happened after then? What's the next stage in the journey? Yeah, so um, I can never not not work and not be scratching intellectual itches. So I, I did a lot of reading in that time um, around those themes. Um, but I also have always maintained a sort of portfolio of interests. So Blipper became, you know, a, 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 an important part of that portfolio. But then I did a lot of mentoring, advising, uh, working with VCs as a sort of entrepreneur in residence. I did some angel investing, um, which I, I, I love doing. I'm not quite rich enough to do as much of it as I would like, um, because basically like playing poker and oh, throwing your money dream. down the toilet. Oh, no, that's what I get. Um, <laughs> but it, it makes no financial sense, like paying no. to have a job and paying a lot of money to make no money. Uh, but I love being around ideas and innovators. Um, and I started work at uh, a new accelerator program in London called Zinc, um, which uh, rather like Entrepreneur First brings together individuals who might not have ideas, but sort of match makes them together and hatches businesses out of a sort of seven month, eight month program. Um, what I loved about Zinc is that there was always a social purpose behind each mission. So the mission that I uh, was advising was around mental health. 
Um, and I would go in every week and sort of run like a doctor's surgery where the teams would sort of come and share ideas with me about what they were working on. And I would be, yeah, like say, yes, that's good. Have you considered that? And loved it because I could go home and not have any of the stress. But there was one team there that I just really clicked with and, and, and gelled with. And I loved the way their thinking was going, uh, which is where we come back very nicely to this humane tech thing. Yeah. Because the, what they were playing around with was um, a new form of social video, which was around education. It was about um, taking this stories format, which had become so popular on Instagram and Facebook, but as of now being used only for narcissism, thigh gaps, sunsets, <laughs> cat memes. Yes. Um, but, but very, very democratic and easy and quick to create mm. content. Just snap, click, take a photograph, string it together, publish. Brilliant. And the most democratic form of video that you can do, but serving no value. The junk food analogy that I was using earlier. Now, their idea was to harness that as a format and repurpose it for educational step-by-step how-to videos. And, you know, kind of, again, a bit like the conversation that I had with Blipper back in the days. And when I saw that demo, I suddenly had this vision of how we could do something that was a tech for good proposition where the output of social behaviors could be more altruistic, whether we could where we could build an effective bank, almost Wikipedia style of quick answers to quick questions that would. And this was the key to me, get people offline, ironically. So it was about aggregating how-to knowledge about things that you do in the real world without a business model that was an infinite scroll and when here's another video you might like and here's another video you might like. It just answered the question you had. How do I build that piece of IKEA furniture? How do I do that hairstyle? How do I um, uh, yoga pose, a piece of DIY? You know, anything. We all have these questions. Um, And they come up five or six times a day and we turn to Google and we turn to YouTube and then we fall down the rabbit hole. You know, we find the answers. The answers are all online, but they'll be buried 30 minutes into a long form YouTube video. And then there'll be some clickbait because and you will be tempted by that clickbait. I always am much as, as aware as I am of these techniques. I will play that next video. And what we wanted to do was just give them the answer, squeeze out all that superfluous crap, frankly. You know, we, we, we called ourselves a no hey guys environment. Anyone who says hey guys in a tick story will get automatically that, we, yeah, deleted. Definitely. It's just not, that's not what we wanted. We just, just give us the facts, give us yeah. the information, demonstrate how to do it so that people can get offline doing, creating, playing, building. Yeah. Um, so that was the mission behind Tick oh, Done. Wow. And the name... It's supposed to denote that. Yeah. I've got a question. I've answered that question. Tick. Done. Done. Yeah, nice break. Thank you, everybody, for listening to season one of the Uncensored CMO. Um, now, as you hopefully you heard, I had a great conversation there with Jess Butcher, but we were far from finished. So as a bit of a cliffhanger to season two, I'm actually going to be doing a second part to my conversation with Jess. I didn't even get to talk to her about being unemployable or what it's like being a woman in tech. So um, if you want to find out a little bit more about Jess and uh, what she's been up to, then tune back in to season two of the Uncensored CMO. Now, to make sure you don't miss out, please, please do subscribe and uh, also follow me on Twitter at Uncensored CMO. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I've had a real blast recording season one and there's a ton of great content coming up in season two. So please do comment, like, share with everybody. And uh, I really, really genuinely appreciate all your support. 
and uh, listening this far. Thank you very much. Thank you.